Hey guys, Dr. Childs here. Today I have with me Dr. Eric Osansky. Dr. Eric Osansky is a chiropractor, clinical nutritionist, a certified functional medicine practitioner, and author of the book, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease. Dr. Osansky was personally diagnosed with Graves' Disease and has been in remission through the use of natural therapies uh, for quite some time. His focus is now on helping people with hyperthyroidism do everything that they can to avoid radioactive iodine ablation and thyroid surgery. So Dr. Osansky, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Childs. Appreciate it. Look forward to, to sharing some great information with your listeners. Absolutely. I think we're going to have a good time here. I get, I don't know if this is the same as you, but I, well, maybe not for you, but I get accused a lot of not talking enough about hyperthyroidism. So th there's this group of patients who have hyperthyroidism, who I think get a little bit neglected, right? Because a lot of people, more people, if we're talking statistics, have hypothyroidism than they do hyperthyroidism. So um, I tend to focus more on the hypo group. So but for those people who have hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease, thyroidectomy, RAI, this one is for you. And so we're really grateful to have Dr. Osansky with us today. Um, so, um, Doc, I want you to, if you could, just maybe introduce uh, yourself to the listeners here. Tell us a little bit about your own personal story, because I know you've had a personal history with uh, Graves' disease. So maybe you could just dive in there and kind of explain um, what happened to you briefly and then how that kind of uh, informs what you're doing now with your patients. Sure. So back in 2008, I was dieting, detoxifying, and in my case, I was losing a lot of weight. A little bit, we'll talk about weight gain and hyperthyroidism, but you know, a number of people also lose weight, and that was me. I lost 42 pounds when I was dealing with Graves' disease, um, but, at the, but at the time, I didn't know it was hyperthyroidism until sure. one day I just checked my resting heart rate. Actually, what happened, I checked my blood pressure, which also measured my heart rate, and the blood pressure was fine, but the resting heart rate was elevated. And so I wasn't sure what was up. So the next few days, I just continued to check my heart rate and it continued to be, you know, in the, initially like 90, but it would fluctuate between 90 and sometimes going over a hundred. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, was thinking maybe hyperthyroidism, but again, that was, I didn't have experience at the time working with other patients. So mm -hmm. I went, I saw a primary care doctor and he did some blood tests and sure enough, I had hyperthyroidism. And eventually saw an endocrinologist and, you know, she tested antibodies and was diagnosed with Graves' disease. And even though I didn't have experience at the time with Graves' disease or you know, hyperthyroidism, I knew I was going to take a natural approach just because I would attend as part of my continuing education credits, I would attend nutritional seminars and I attended a few functional endocrinology conferences. So I knew there, were, there was a natural approach for thyroid conditions. That, that, as you mentioned, hypothyroidism more common. So they spoke mm -hmm. more about hypothyroidism, but they also spoke about hyperthyroidism a little bit. Right. And so long story short, I took a natural approach for hyperthyroidism. And we could talk more about that if you'd like. But mm -hmm. uh, it, yeah, and since two, 2009, I've been in remission. And, you know, just it's you know, been a challenge uh, maintaining. Well, I shouldn't say been a challenge maintaining my health. It's always, you know, it's always a work in progress. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it, once you get into the routine, you know, it's not too bad. Just and again, we could talk more about this. But, uh, you know, back, getting back to 2009, I realized that there's a lot of people with both hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism. So I started working with people with both hypo and hyper, Graves, Hashimoto's. And just over the years, even though I've seen both hyper and hypo patients, 
people tend with hyperthyroidism tend to resonate with me more just because that's my personal story. Sure. So I, I, as you mentioned, I wrote a book on hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. I actually wrote a book on Hashimoto's as well as in 2018, but just over the last couple of years, I've made more of a shift to hyperthyroidism, even though I still see some patients with Hashimoto's, mm -hmm. but but yeah, there's a, even though there's a lot more patients with a lot more people with hypothyroidism, there's still a lot out there with hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease, toxic multinodular goiter, and mm -hmm. that in a nutshell is my story. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and actually, I want to go back to one point that you mentioned. So um, for those listening as well, uh, maybe we could, you could talk about this a little bit, but you kind of said maybe it's been a struggle and that probably wasn't the right word that you wanted to use there. But I do think that's that's actually pretty important because a lot of patients, I think, know that there is these, this opportunity to naturally treat their conditions, right? And I think people know that it exists and know that they can do it. But I think maybe what they kind of fail to understand is that it is a process, you know, getting, uh, going from a, a state of autoimmunity to a state of remission. Um, once you get there, you know, that's kind of, that's, that's a feat unto itself. However, it's going to take some iteration and changes to your diet and therapy over, over the long term to stay that way, you know, and you're always going to have, at least in my experience, kind of have a propensity to go back to that autoimmune state. Maybe, you know, you, if you, if you're not careful, if you have too much stress, if you have these, these factors and triggers, you might see your antibodies start to creep up and, and whatnot. So I do think that's a really important point. So for those people who are listening to us, to this discussion, we're going to have, um, you know, if you are able to get yourself into remission, continuing education, continue to learn and figure out what's going on in your body is still very important. Um, you know, is that, is that kind of true? Does that ring true to you and in, in your personal experience? Oh, I agree. When I was actually looking to get into remission, that was very challenging, mm -hmm. both mentally it was challenging emotionally it was challenging and then as you mentioned making the dietary changes you know and then since then i, I don't want to use this word struggle to stay in remission but you know i, I still have to try to eat well most of the time no, nobody's going to be perfect 100 percent of sure. the time but most of the time eat well and manage my stress which was a big factor i think in my graves disease condition mm -hmm. and uh, you know get proper sleep so a lot of the basics and a yeah. lot of it becomes routine so yeah without question once when you're trying to get into remission it's definitely not a quick and easy process and even when you're trying to maintain a state of wellness i can't say it's easy but it's easier i guess compared to when trying to achieve that state of remission for sure. And I, I would agree with that. I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to get to that point, but then, you know, it becomes a little easier, but still something you have to pay attention to, to maintain it. Um, and so that really kind of brings me into the next topic. So we can kind of tie in um, your own personal history of, of these natural treatments, because I really want to hear more about them. So um, as a backdrop, I'm going to explain something and then uh, to the listeners, because I know you already know this, uh, Dr. Osansky, but I'm going to explain this to them. And then we can kind of talk, we can kind of pick where we're going to be talking about here. So when we, when I talk a lot about Graves' disease, there's a lot of confusion among thyroid patients, right? Because we have people who have maybe just been initially diagnosed with Graves' disease who have a certain set of symptoms. Then we have people who have been diagnosed and are now, on now taking anti-thyroid medication who have a different set of symptoms because that treatment um, interferes with thyroid function. And then, um, heaven forbid this occurs, but it does occur, if this area fails with the anti-thyroid medication and the natural treatments, then you move on to uh, thyroid surgery or radioactive iodine ablation. And that comes with a whole new set of problems. So we kind of have three groups, th kind of three areas here. Now, what I want to do is kind of extract out the middle one here. And this includes people who have been recently diagnosed and who are using anti-thyroid medication. And the reason I want to focus on them is because we have the opportunity through treatments to potentially prevent the progression to thyroid removal and radioactive iodine ablation. And I think that's really the key here. So what I want to do is talk about natural treatments. And again, I'm just giving the backdrop for those people listening, because I, again, I know you know this, Dr. Osansky, but let's talk a little bit about the natural treatments that people can do to try and prevent that radioactive iodine 
um, and thyroid surgery. So you talked a little bit about yourself. You talked that you use some natural therapy. So maybe what you can do is um, intertwine what you use and kind of how you look at patients when it comes to natural therapies during this time. So if you can kind of expand your philosophy on that area. Sure. So I also want to add that while a lot of my patients take antithyroid medication, not everybody. So I chose to take an herb bugleweed, which you're, mm. I'm sure you're familiar with. And mm. bugleweed, it doesn't work in everybody. There's, you know, you just, everything comes down to risk versus benefits and antithyroid medication without question is more effective, but it also comes with greater side effects. Right. So some people that just choose not to start the antithyroid medication and take the, take the bugleweed or someone might experience side effects and, and switch to the bugleweed. I never tell someone to stop taking a medication mm -hmm. and to take the bugleweed, but bugleweed from a symptom management option, bugleweed is, is one option that could help lower thyroid hormone levels. And I also took motherwort, which I, I kind of related to a natural beta blocker. It's not directly affecting the thyroid, but can help with palpitations. So when I was taking a bugleweed, it definitely helped with my resting heart rate because uh, I would monitor it on a daily basis, but I was yeah. still having some palpitations, eventually introduced motherwort. But then as far as additional supplements to try to correct triggers, underlying imbalances. So there are some general supplements I recommend. And then, you know, I do typically recommend certain tests and then mm. other supplements are based on the test results. So okay. for example, some general supplement recommendations I might give include omega-3 fatty acids. So for example, a fish oil and, and people could even test, they could do like an omega-3 index to see if they're deficient, mm. uh, which many people are, especially if they're not supplementing or if they're not eating fish regularly. And so, uh, so that's, that's one supplement, uh, which could ha greatly help with inflammation, uh, probiotic. Uh, when we think about probiotics, a lot of people think about gut health, which is true, but it also modulates the immune system and vitamin D. So vitamin D, I definitely want to test for, which is an easy test, as you know, right. uh, doing like a 25 hydroxy vitamin D and a lot of people are deficient. Uh, in vitamin D. And, and, and some people are within the lab range, but they're not within an optimal range. Sure, um, sure. So, so vitamin D, uh, selenium, and there's a, a, a number of research studies when it comes to thyroid health, thyroid autoimmunity, even thyroid eye disease, the benefits of selenium. And, you know, but then again, as I mentioned, I like to do testing too. So like when I was diagnosed with Graves, I had, a, and one of the tests I did was an adrenal saliva test. And at the time I was in denial because I didn't think stress, I knew stress was a factor, but honestly, I thought I was good at handling the stress. So yeah. I honestly didn't expect the adrenal testing to look as bad as it did. And so, you know, when it comes to supporting adrenals, before we talk about supplements, of course, diet and lifestyle are important. So, you know, you want to eat well, health, whole healthy foods. You want to block out time for stress management, try to make sure you're getting sufficient sleep, which sometimes a cat is a catch 22 because you might have adrenal issues that's preventing you from getting sleep. So we might have to Absolutely. work on that. But um, so I had low cortisol levels and, you know, so I took B vitamins, I took vitamin C. Um, I also took an herb, uh, which you're familiar with, licorice root, mm -hmm. uh, for, which helps to extend the life of cortisol. And uh, people want to be cautious though, because if someone has high blood pressure that is contraindicated. So, uh, but I, I think that was helpful. And I took uh, another herb, an adaptogenic herb called Eleuthero, also known as Siberian ginseng. Mm -hmm. And there's other, other adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha, rhodiola, 
But so those were some of the ones that I took. Uh, there's also, a, in some cases, adrenal glandulars. And, you know, if someone has elevated cortisol, you know, some of the same things. I mean, you could definitely take an adaptogenic herb, but uh, there are other natural supplements to help lower cortisol. And again, they, they'll assist in lowering cortisol. You still have to do things to manage the stress response and, and again, do everything else from a diet and lifestyle perspective. But uh, like phosphatidylserine, for example, or Rolora are some of the other su supplements. And, and again, it, it depends on the findings. If someone does a comprehensive stool panel, and let's say they get tested for H. pylori. So H. pylori in the literature has been shown to be a potential trigger, not always sure, sure. a trigger, but could potentially be a trigger for both Graves and Hashimoto. So if I do see H. pylori, whether it's a comprehensive stool panel or if someone does just a stool antigen test or urea bread test, then I will put them on a protocol uh, or a natural protocol, unless mm -hmm. if they choose to take antibiotics and you know, I, I'll give uh, one of the supplements I commonly give is NAC, N-acetylcysteine, which supports liver. It helps it converts into glutathione. And um, again, so so there are some general ones I give, but there are also some that are you know based on the the testing, such as some of the examples I gave. Mm -hmm. That's that's really awesome, actually. Uh, I, for those listening, that that's a that's a great uh, spectrum and array of, of supplements and nutrients that can be used. In fact, it reminds me when I, in fact, I was mentioning this to uh, to you earlier. Uh, when I first started out, I was working with somebody, and um, this particular person had a lot of experience in using supplements. And um, I remember when I got into the office, they, they people would kind of comment on this person's ability to to put supplements together in such a way that would kind of solve most problems. It was, it was actually really impressive. And I came from this world where it was like you know predominantly medication right because that's kind of sort of what my training was i was like yeah yeah you know give them a thimazole give them a beta blocker right that that'll solve the problem but this guy was like you know intertwining and weaving in the supplements together and having profound results and i was really impressed by that so um i, I like the way that you're sort of presenting this information um the, the various types of supplements that can be used in fact i want to talk about several of those but what i want to do before i do that um is kind of ask you in terms of your approach and it, maybe it sounds like i kind of we're on the same page here but um what i found to be true especially in a lot of thyroid patients is that if you can, if you start with a baseline level of tests and we look at nutrient deficiencies, we look at just through a history, right? We can get an idea as to someone's gut health. We can get ideas to their stress levels, to their sleep. A lot of the times what I'm doing is I'm not saying you have thyroid problems, therefore you need these supplements. Instead, I'm saying, I'm looking at this person and thinking, well, you're not getting enough sleep. You have gut problems. Maybe you have H. pylori. You have these things. So I'm just sort of fixing the obvious problems. And I see the body kind of help uh, respond in kind in that way. So is that kind of uh, a similar kind of approach that you're taking or is it a little bit different? What's your philosophy on sort of how you come to the conclusion of what therapies and treatments somebody needs? Yeah, well... I mean, as I mentioned, so some, and not just supplements, but like, for example, diet, uh, you know, di you know with, with all my patients, I, of course, focus on diet. Mm -hmm. And we, we could talk more about the diet. There's no, oh, we will. There's, yeah, there's no perfect diet that fits everyone. But right. to me, there's a starting point for many patients. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, again, the stress management, I think is important. You know, but again, with supplements, as I mentioned, yeah, I, I think there it's important to, like when I mentioned the uh, the fish oils, omega-3s, the vitamin D, the selenium, what all those have in common is that they modulate the immune system. And, right. you know, in a condition such as Graves' disease, that's, that's very important. But not everybody 
you know, not, I mean, many people have a vitamin D deficiency, but usually correct, at least in my experience, correcting a vitamin D deficiency alone usually won't get the person into remission. Same thing with giving, getting, um, giving the person selenium. Agreed. Yeah. So usually I, I find that we need to dig deeper and that's mm -hmm. where, in, in my experience, the testing comes into play, whether it's a, a doing adrenal testing, which again, that I commonly recommend, mm -hmm. you know, of course, certain blood tests I recommend, sometimes other tests like a comprehensive stool panel, organic acids test, and, and the testing they get is based on their findings. Just like any practitioner, I do a co comprehensive health history and try to figure out, you know, what supplements they may need. And, uh, you know, and then once they're on a certain supplement, then of course we monitor how they're not only, you know, their, their blood tests primarily, uh, but then sometimes we'll do a follow-up adrenal test. And of course, you know, a lot of people, even without the testing, will notice that they're doing better. And that was me when I was even just taking the bugleweed and the motherwort and not, you know, addressing the cause of the problem at that point. You know, I noticed my symptoms getting better. And that, that's also the trap. You can't always go by symptoms because if someone's taking especially antithyroid medication, such as methimazole or PTU, that of course is masking the symptoms. So right. it might cause other symptoms like hyposymptoms, but, right. uh, but yeah, I think we do take a, a similar approach. No, no practitioner takes the exact same approach, sure. but yeah, just really trying to find, remove triggers, trying to address underlying imbalances, nutrient deficiencies, you know, all these things. And, you know, sometimes it's complex. So, sometimes it's, sometimes it is a, a smooth process where, you know, someone progresses without any setbacks, but sometimes it is like a roller coaster ride where someone maybe takes a few steps forward, a step back, a few steps forward, a step back. Sometimes a person hits a roadblock and we might, you know, need to do additional testing. So, you know, the, you know, every, everybody's every, as you know, everybody is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate you mentioning that sometimes you go backwards, right? And that actually happens a little bit, you know, two step forward, one step backwards. Um, that's actually pretty common, uh, especially among treating most patients. In fact, uh, the way it was described to me is that, um, you know, sometimes you feel worse on the right therapies, you know, for a short period of time. And uh, so I, I've, I've, I've had people who will say that to me and they'll, they'll think that that's a reason to stop doing whatever they're doing, uh, when in reality, it could be the reason or it could be an indication they need to keep doing it, right? It also could be a sign that maybe they're not on the right thing, but it can't just be automatically a blanket statement, this is wrong because I feel bad for a couple of days, therefore we got to get rid of it. Um, yep. So I, I appreciate you mentioning that. So what I want to do also is ask you what kind of... Um, effectiveness how how common are you seeing people go into remission if they if you, they catch it early are there any you know signs uh, um, or or uh, telltale signs that you can identify in somebody that maybe gives them a higher chance of going to remission is this something that you can achieve in you know 70 80 90 percent of patients is it less is it just sort of depend what kind of effectiveness do you do you tend to see with these these therapies i mean it's pretty effective for those who follow the recommendations mm -hmm. you know i would say and and as you know uh, again being a practitioner uh, just compliance sometimes is, is a sure, factor, sure. but, um, I would say about 75%. Nice. And yeah. So, um, and as far as whether predicting if someone is, let's say a good candidate to go into remission, it, it honestly does vary. I mean, so if someone has like, for example, the antibodies associated with Graves disease, the, uh, thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin, CSH receptor antibodies, mm -hmm. you know, and some, I know you can't always go by antibodies, like TPO sure. antibodies, you know, if they're really high, that doesn't always correlate with the, you know, the, the recovery of the person. Uh, TSI, mm -hmm. usually the, what I've experienced, the higher the level, the higher the immune response, the more mm -hmm. likely they are to have thyroid eye disease, uh, which again, we also could chat about if we have mm -hmm. time. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, so if someone has 
high TSI. It doesn't, again, I've seen people with elevated TSI, like really high TSI levels, like over 400%, 500%. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the units do vary. So now they, sure. they yeah. changed the units uh, recently. But, um, you know, and I've seen people where really high levels, they still get into remission. And then on the other hand, I'll see people where, you know, they might have lower antibodies, even mildly high antibodies, and it's more of a struggle. And I think part of that does come with addressing, you know, again, finding removing triggers. Sometimes it's easy with the person, or I don't want to use the term easy, but sometimes again, easier. And some people, mm -hmm. some people, I can't say in most people that diet alone will get the person into remission, but sometimes that is the case. They might sure. just clean up their diet, avoid gluten, and you know, avoid other common allergens and manage their stress and might not need to see a practitioner and they get into remission. And then for others, we might do some initial testing and there might be a lot of findings uh, as far as nutrient deficiencies, adrenal imbalances. Uh, but even after correcting that, they don't go into remission. So something else is there. And that, you know, the, the, so the point is people could have multiple triggers too. And, you know, even if someone has a single trigger, sometimes it, it could be a challenge finding that trigger. So, so it really does depend. I can't say I could predict. I mean, I feel confident with most people, but I never know how compliant they're going to be. Um, I will also say that as crazy as it may sound, I think it's easier to get people with graves into remission than like, a, a, like toxic multinodule goiter. I have success with that as well, but that mm -hmm. seems to be a little bit more challenging sure. uh, to get people into remission with that. But, uh, but with graves, like I said, it's not easy. It definitely takes time. Um, but yeah, I wish I could say there was, you know, a, a, you know, a single pattern or if someone comes in and their levels, I mean, if someone comes in and the levels are mild, you know, yeah, I like to see that more than someone that has really elevated thyroid hormone levels and, you sure. know, sky high TSI, but it's not always easier to treat the one with the mild uh, case. Um, I will say uh, most of my patients are adults, but I deal with some, unfortunately, some children, teenagers with hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes in them, them, it could be a quicker process. But it's a little bit of a catch-22 because also when they're that young, it's also could be ch more challenging to be compliant, right? Um, especially like with the, with the diet. So, um, so yeah, I, I, like I said, I wish I could say that there was like a si single pattern where I could look and say, yeah, you have a 90, 95% chance of getting into remission where someone else comes and sees me and they might only have a 50% chance of getting right. into remission. But I can't say I consistently, you know, see a, a, a single pattern like that. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate uh, the honesty there. And um, I think that's maybe one of the, the reasons that uh, conventional doctors don't quite really understand um, functional medicine, because the way that we're talking about this is, is highly individualized. Every person's a little different. Um, you know, the supplements they, meet are, they need are going to be different. Their triggers might be different. And so when you look at conventional medicine, they want to look at things um, in, in the aggregate. So if you give somebody a beta blocker, they want to see it work 95% of the time, right? And that's just not going to be the, be the case with some of these supplements. Like you, someone may not need it, right? Not everyone necessarily needs you know, I don't know, let's just say fish oil, for example, or, or vitamin D, if their level's okay and they're out in the sun all the time, right? There are situations in which you can't universally apply these recommendations broadly across the population of anyone who has just this single disease state. And so I think um, maybe that's why a lot of people struggle, uh, or at least conventional doctors struggle with this idea that we're kind of talking about. But as a patient, it makes perfect sense, right? Um, you want somebody that's going to treat you individually and unique uh, in, in a unique way. You want supplements catered to, to your situation, to your condition. You want somebody to be searching for the triggers. Um, and that actually leads me to the next question. 
question, which I want to mention is what type of uh, what type of triggers are you seeing as the most common cause of let's talk about Graves disease. Um, and if you want to throw in anything else there, like um, toxic multinodular goiter, you can as well. But what, what kind of main triggers are you seeing for uh, Graves disease? Yeah, so with Graves, I mean, stress without question, it, and everybody deals with stress and there's different types of stressors too. But I know, uh, again, my adrenals were a big factor with my Graves disease condition. And it's not just emotional stress. I think one thing is that's important to mention when before prior to diagnosis, I was also overtraining, and that could put a lot of stress on adrenals. You mean exercising, uh, overtraining? Over exercising, yeah. 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 Just, yeah. So, um, so yeah, adrenals, you know, stress, adrenals, uh, that causes dysregulation of the immune system. And, you know, again, is it always the direct trigger or is it sometimes just like the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back? Right. You know, th that definitely could be the case, but either way you want to, you know, address, uh, address stress. You know, I mentioned food. Food is not, I don't see it as a primary tr trigger. Again, I would say stress is definitely up there, but that being said, it could be a trigger. And then certain foods such as gluten, dairy, corn could be inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So I think if someone continues to eat those foods, it's going to be difficult to heal. So I, I do have people avoid those foods. And uh, gut infections, again, just like things like H. pylori, you know, just, uh, you know, is common. You know, parasites, there's nothing in the literature showing like, oh, I haven't seen anything in the literature, like correlation between uh, graves and uh, parasites. There is a case study on Hashimoto's and blastocystis hominis that uh, right, um, right. was out there. But, but I have seen where you know, I've done a comparative stool panel, and there's been you know the patient has parasites. You know we clean them out. They get into remission. You know of course again there's also situations where we see a parasite and uh, and again we we get rid of the parasite and they don't get into remission. Like okay. Sure something else out there and then you know the, the there's also flaws with the testing too because sometimes a person might have a parasite but it doesn't show up on the comprehensive stool panel right uh, so yeah the the testing unfortunately is not perfect but so again stress gut infections again i'm going to include food in there even though i would yeah. say it's not like the primary thing i see uh you know toxins it's hard to really measure I, the thing is also i have you know, most people, pretty much everybody, and even myself, since being in remission, I've been uh, just always working on reducing my toxic load. And, you know, it's always some, a good thing. Yeah, exactly. We live in a very toxic world. And so with some patients, it might be basic. I mentioned like the NAC, N-acetylcysteine. Sometimes you might, you know, have them take liposomal glutathione or elated mm -hmm. glutathione. We might talk about sauna, you know, infrared yeah. sauna. To help sweat out the toxins. Right. So, so again, that that could be a factor as well. Uh, and with toxic multinodular goiter, the two more common triggers, and this is also in the research. So, problems with estrogen metabolism, as well as insulin resistance, um, being uh, you know two two big potential factors with uh, toxic multinodular goiter. So, those are you know, two things that I usually address or look into there. There is testing, obviously with insulin resistance, you can do testing with estrogen sure. metabolism. It's not as easy. There is, you know, dry, you're probably familiar with dried urine testing, Dutch yeah, testing. The Dutch, yeah. Estrogen metabolites. Right. But those are, you know, seem to be more of a factor with, uh, you know, toxic multinodular goiter. And even, I mean, with Graves, those could be factors too. Again, I don't know if you would say they're always direct triggers. If someone has insulin resistance or, you know, you also talk about leptin resistance. I mean, those, uh, you know, again, could be a factor, but are they the primary factor or the triggers? 
I mean, sometimes it is difficult to differentiate, like what's a trigger, what's a contributing factor. But like most natural healthcare practitioners, we try to correct everything. So if we mm -hmm. see three or four different imbalances and you know maybe a few of them are maybe one only one's a trigger but again we don't know so we just yeah. like just try to correct everything we see try to get the person in an optimal state of health yeah I, I definitely agree with that i think i think it's really hard to ever say this thing is primary this thing is secondary this thing is tertiary um you know it's really hard to pinpoint one of those things but like you said if it's there you treat it now in a lot of cases um you can sometimes correct something and then downstream you'll see improvement in these things and they kind of clean themselves up and so i'll i'll sort of pull back the punches in terms of therapy sometimes if i think you know treating this will treat you know symptom four and five right so you see a lot of that um, sometimes as well um the other thing i was going to ask you is what about epstein-barr virus so um there's there's some connection between these two conditions uh especially hashimoto's i don't know about graves disease so kind of get your opinion on that do you see epstein-barr virus as a potential cause trigger or is it one of those things that maybe it's just secondary it happens to be there maybe it's causing a little inflammation and if you treat it you see a little improvement what, what are your thoughts on epstein-barr and graves yeah, I'm glad you asked the question because I do test for Epstein-Barr. Yeah. I, I test for, uh, you know, the IgM, but then the three IgG right. markers as well. And, you know, the, I still still think we don't understand everything about viruses. Maybe with everything that's happened over the past, you know, year and a half or so, we'll, you know, do even more research on other viruses such as Epstein-Barr. But yeah, um, but yeah the, actually the literature, the literature shows that there is a correlation. Again, correlation doesn't always mean causation, but... Right. But that Epstein-Barr could be potentially be a trigger with both Graves and Hashimoto's. And when, you know, when I see, I don't see a lot of IgM elevated with Epstein-Barr, but if I do, then of course I'm going to get concerned. But even yeah. if I see really high, extremely high IgG markers, you know, there's now, you know, just some practitioners, you know, are suspecting that that may mean that the Epstein-Barr virus is reactivated. And, I will say though that even if it is a potential trigger, most people have Epstein Barr. Right. So I can't say I go crazy with the antiviral protocols. That there's sometimes I will put someone on an antiviral, like put them on antiviral herbs. I even, you know, more recently over the last few years, have used some homeopathy. Mm -hmm. But it, to me, it's more of an immune system problem. Right. So what I try to do is try to see what's dragging down the person's immune system, and then correct those imbalances. If someone again has is dealing with a lot of stress and their adrenals are compromised. And if they have issues with the gut, you know, most of the immune system cells are in the gut. So you need healthy gut for healthy immune system. So right. you know, if we're not addressing those, but if, if all we're doing is putting someone on a protocol for Epstein-Barr or, you know, any other type of virus, like cytomegalovirus is another one. Um, if, if someone puts, gets on a protocol, but if we're not doing anything to improve the immune system health, then it's really not going to be effective. And what I see is sometimes, we ad by addressing these other areas, the person doesn't need to be on an antiviral protocol. Mm -hmm. Some people do, and some sometimes uh, I'll put a person on an antiviral protocol. Um, my my perception also changed because in 2018 I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease, and uh, you know, and again I realized even though I, I I did treat the infection, I took herbs, I took homeopathy, I actually did some ozone IV ozone therapy too. I um, was a little bit aggressive with that just because mm -hmm. I was concerned about being debilitated and sure yeah you know, but, but I, just, I realized also that's more you know it's not exactly the same as Epstein-Barr but still it's important to have healthy immune system when it comes to these stealth infections whether it's viruses whether it's you know Lyme disease whether it's Bartonella so so my number one approach is to improve immune system health uh, but there are times when I will directly treat the infection. 
Yeah. And I think, I think the focus on immune system makes a lot of sense. So um, when I, when, and just for clarification, for those listening, when um, Dr. Sansky was talking about IgM antibodies and IgG antibodies, um, the IgM indicates like a more recent infection, in fact, an acute infection. And the IgG simply means that you had it at some point. It could have been a year ago. It could have been six months ago. It could have been 20 years ago. I don't, you know, you don't really know. And so you get put in this weird situation. If you're a provider and you're checking for Epstein-Barr virus via the IgG antibodies, you know, 70% of 80% of people are going to come up positive. So then what do you do? Do you, do you look at it and you think, well, I guess I'm going to treat everybody. And it sounds like Dr. Osansky, what you're saying here is no, it just sort of depends on the situation. And that's really kind of, kind of what I found. Although I, ha I can tell you from experience that there have been a handful of times when I, I try and do everything I can, they're not seeing improvement. I'm like, well, I mean, we still, we, we got these Epstein-Barr virus that we can look at, we treat it and I, you see amazing improvement. And so it's like in some people, in some people it's, it's there and it's a, it's a huge potential, um, uh, source where you can uh, of treatment where somebody can feel a lot better if you do it. The hard part is figuring out who is who. You know, it could be one out of a hundred, or I don't know, one a thousand. Who knows? But it, it's not as easy to die to to figure out who is going to benefit from that treatment. And so that's why I said I think this this focus on the immune system makes the most sense because you know if you focus on the immune system, help your body get rid of it on its own, or at least suppress it back, um, prevent the flare-ups or recurrent infections, or um, you know the chronic smoldering type of infection that can exist, then that probably puts you in the best situation. But if you're somebody listening to this, you have Graves or Hashimoto's and Maybe you've tried everything and it hasn't worked. Well, it's worth looking into. You know, a lot of these therapies aren't necessarily, um, you know, uh, let's say damaging or harmful um, if you're going to look at these antiviral therapies, at least in my experience. So, um, yeah, I, I appreciate uh, that. Did you have any other thoughts to add on to that topic before we move on? Or No, I agree. Uh, it sounds yeah. like it's like a similar approach. If someone's not responding and those antibodies are, are sky high, you know, the IgG, yeah, I, I know we're not going to get rid of them. And I make sure I right. tell the patient they're never going to normalize. But yeah, I've seen where the markers dramatically decrease, you know, and, and yeah, so I, I, I yeah, so I, we, we take the same approach, I think, focus on immune system first, but if someone's not improving, I have no problems putting them on an antiviral protocol, and, and yes, that's sometimes what I do. Okay, good. And so, yeah, we're definitely on the same page there. Let's transition a little bit to diet, because we talked about this briefly. Um, there are some things... I, I, what you said previously, and I'm going back into your conversation, you mentioned that there are some principles and tenets that, especially as it comes to diet and, you know, maybe even certain supplements that most people tend to improve on if they have, you know, hyperthyroidism or Graves' disease. So let's talk a little bit about diet. What are those sort of, you know, the foundational blocks of, of, of dietary foods or that they may eat or may restrict and that can improve that, that situation or outcome? And then we'll kind of build on top of that from there. So kind of when you look at diet and you look at somebody with Graves, how, do, how is, um, what are you starting with? Let's put it that way. So I think most practitioners would agree that you want to have the person eat whole healthy foods and try to avoid the inflammatory foods. So whole sure. healthy foods, you know, it, what I consider a whole healthy food. So eating a good amount of vegetables and variety of vegetables, you know, some, some fruit usually is okay. If someone eats meat and they're not a vegan vegetarian, then mm -hmm. eating healthier forms of meat like uh, grass fed beef pasture-raised chicken, for example, right. and, and then avoiding certain foods, like I mentioned earlier, gluten, dairy, corn, uh, some will say to avoid all grains. And I honestly take that approach okay. uh, where I tell, not to say that people, there are some people that have, uh, that struggle with giving up grains completely, and that could go with any food. And there are some people that still will eat a small amount of grains and they might do okay, but but usually I tell the person to avoid grains while, while healing, um, mm -hmm. inflammatory, like unhealthy oils, uh, like canola oil, for example, try to have them stick with like avocado oil, coconut oil, um, olive oil, of course, 
And, uh, you know, of course, avoiding fast food. And a big reason is because of those unhealthy oils and of right. course the poor quality, just in general, the food, the refined foods and sugars. Uh, and, you know, there's some research also with salt. So I do recommend some natural sea salt, but I did want to mention that, uh, you know, a lot, when too much salt is associated with high blood pressure, at least that's what we think, you know, to, you know, we have too much salt that's going to raise blood pressure, right, but right. there is some evidence that too much sodium chloride can increase TH17 cells, which are associated with autoimmunity. So you also want to be careful about eating too much salt. And again, if you're eating, not, not just salting your food, but just eating a lot of packaged foods, because a lot of packaged foods will have, pretty much all packaged foods will have, will have sodium. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I will say, as far as different diets, though, I, I did mention earlier, there's no diet that fits everyone perfectly. Right. But I do tend to, have my at least my grave disease patients start on autoimmune paleo or AIP. yeah if that's too strict paleo um you know so aip as i'm sure you know that is more strict than paleo and that it, uh, you're, you're avoiding eggs you're avoiding nightshades you're avoiding nuts and seeds and um you know there are some people that do fine on paleo they might find aip too restrictive and you know, they, it's kind of compromising. They're like, I could do paleo, but I can't do AIP. And some people do okay. There are some people where they hit a roadblock and they will, uh, you know, do AIP. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, food isn't the only factor. So we, we also do get people who are following AIP and maybe they feel a little bit better, but they're not feeling that much better. You know, I still tell them don't get discouraged because it's never going to hurt to avoid the inflammatory foods. And if you're right. eating, certain foods, again, maybe the eggs, if you didn't introduce, maybe you gave up eggs for no reason. Like, you know, if you followed AIP, maybe you didn't have to give up the eggs, but we didn't know. And so you gave them up. There are some people that, you know, they'll continue eating the eggs. And then the, until they take a break from the eggs, they won't notice an improvement. So, so to me, I don't want someone to be super restrictive, but it's again, one of those, another one of those catch 22s where if someone is not restrictive enough, they might hit a roadblock and I'm not sure if it's the food. And to me, that's the easiest place to start. Again, not yeah. easy, it's a challenge. And I, I went right. through it too when I was dealing with Gravesies, but you know, it's, it's definitely less expensive than having someone spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on additional testing, you know, rather than say, well, why don't we just you know, try to avoid these foods that could be factors and you know, do it at least for 30 days. If you could do it for a few months, that's even better. And, you know, but if someone compromises and they want to do paleo or they might even want to do modified paleo, where they're like, well, you know, can I have a little bit of rice per day? Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, it, it, it's ultimately up to the patients, you know, no matter what I say, it's going to be up to them. And, right. um, you know, if they continue doing that and, or if they drink coffee, I would usually recommend avoiding coffee, but if they yeah. could do everything else, but have a little bit of coffee, sometimes it might affect adrenals and prevent them from healing you know, with the caffeine and all that, but sometimes it might not. So, so sometimes there is some negotiation, but I think the commonality is again, whole healthy foods, plenty of vegetables, try to eat organic whenever possible. Again, um, some sea salt's okay, but not a lot of salt in general, avoid the unhealthy oils. And um, yeah, those are some of the, the recommendations I give. Uh, yeah, I, I honestly agree with almost almost every every one of those. Uh, to be honest, in fact, I don't think there's anything I don't agree with. Um, I will say 
that in my experience, um, just treating mostly Hashimoto's, right? I didn't treat a ton of grays, but mostly treated Hashimoto's. By the time people got to me with grays, it was post-thyroidectomy and post-radioactive iodine ablation. So it was a little bit different of story, but um, I would I would use AIP, but I tend, to, I tend to reserve AIP just because like you said, it's a little bit stricter. It's harder to follow, maybe some compliance issues and so on. Um, I, I usually reserve it for somebody who has multiple autoimmune conditions or really severe conditions like and that was just my personal preference you know for anyone listening to this you you don't necessarily have to follow that that's just sort of how i thought about it um and so if somebody came in let's say with like vitiligo and celiac disease and hashimoto's well now we've got three autoimmune diseases on one i'm like this person is you know for lack of a better term a mess uh, for, with their immune system right and so this person needs you know probably some a little more aggressive therapies and so that's when i would pull out the big big guns so to speak um i did want to ask you what do you think about carnivore what do you think about keto do these have any place in the treatment of um graves disease or other hyperthyroid conditions or these things that you've used in the past with, with variable success or kind of how do you think about those two diets yeah, I can't say I've used a lot of, again, um, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with both ketogenic and carnivore diet that right. definitely overlap with, with, with the two. Right. And uh, I mean, I will say that, you know, with AIP, I am, you know, uh, low carb, not quite as low as ketogenic. And then mm -hmm. I do encourage people to eat healthy, healthy fats. But, um, but yeah, I mean, if someone is eating a, a healthy ketogenic diet, and I know, I don't know if there's really research on carnivore diet, but I know that there's been a number of people just, uh, in, you know, just doing some searching and just right. maybe even like seeing in like my Facebook group, like people posting that they follow carnivore diet and, you know, and that really helped with their autoimmunity and reducing inflammation. You know, yeah. of course, if they're doing that, I'm sure they're eating whole, like healthier forms. Right. Of, but, uh, but yeah, that's why I was saying there's no perfect diet. Mm -hmm. that fits everyone and, and ketogenic, uh, you know, if someone especially is struggling with losing weight, sometimes that could be a factor. Sometimes, yeah. as you know, that there could be other factors and ketogenic right. doesn't help. But I think, again, the commonality, whole healthy food. So I think ketogenic could potentially work. I think, uh, again, um, carnivore could work. I mentioned even paleo, you know, could yeah. work. it's yeah. not just AIP. And sometimes there's modified. If someone's a vegan vegetarian, sometimes I'll have them follow I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Gundry and his plant paradox yeah. diet. Um, just Yeah, where he has like modifications where he's uh, he allows certain nuts and he actually allows legumes, which is not allowed on either AIP yeah. or paleo, but as long as they're properly prepared or pressure cooked. And so with, with a vegan vegetarian, it's even more difficult for them to follow AIP or even paleo. So, um, so again, I, I see people respond okay you know, with the mod with that type of modified diet. So yeah, I think again, as long as you're, I, I think the big thing avoiding the inflammatory foods, the challenge is sometimes healthier foods, like again, eggs is a good example. I think eggs are, are great, even though there's some, there's always controversies. If you right. look certain places, read certain books, some will say not to eat eggs um, with our conditions. And, but I think some people do perfectly fine with eggs, but some people don't. And same thing with nightshades, nightshades like tomatoes, eggplant, uh, potatoes, um, or white potatoes, or um, peppers. Um, so again, some people will won't do well with nightshades. Other people, it's not a problem. So so that's why I tend to be a little bit more restrictive. But again, you could go either way. Someone could just do paleo, or again, they could do ketogenic, carnivore. You know, just pick a healthier diet as a starting point, and then you could always make modifications. 
Yeah, you know, you're right. You could you could start with the strict, you know, removal of all these things that have potentially caused problems and add to it over time, or you could start with the broader and taper down as you go. So I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong. I just sort of think it depends. So the takeaway here, if you're listening to this, is that diet is highly individualized and it's very unique. It's up to the person. And this sort of brings me into my uh, next quick topic. And this will probably be the last one that we talked about just because we're running a little short on time here is, and that has to do with weight gain. So in hyper hyperthyroid patients can actually paradoxically experience weight gain, right? And it can be confusing for a lot of hyperthyroid patients. And in your case, remember when you talked about it, uh, you, you meant, well, of course you remember it was your case, but you lost a lot of weight in the beginning, right? And however, there are a lot of people taking methimazole, especially these antithyroid medications. I don't think people use PTU quite as much anymore, but mostly methimazole or some other antithyroid medication and they experience weight gain. So can you talk just sort of uh, why that is that some hyperthyroid patients may experience this weight gain? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about the therapies and, and what to do in, in those types situations and kind of how you think about that. Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, antithyroid medication is one factor. So mm -hmm. someone might not have been gaining weight until they started taking, let's say the methimazole. And you're right, PTU, um, not as common every now and then, especially if someone sure, can't sure. take methimazole, they might be taking PTU or if someone is pregnant. pregnant yeah. But, um, but yeah, either way, whatever type of antithyroid medication, that could cause problems with, with weight gain. And it, some we see it co more commonly with higher doses, but even if someone's on like five milligrams of methimazole, that could happen. Yeah. Uh, so that, that could be a challenge. Uh, inflammation, just, I mean, there are a number of different factors, but inflammation alone can make it difficult to lose weight. And these conditions, Graves, Hashimoto's, other autoimmune conditions are quite inflammatory. And that's another reason why you want to do as much as you can through diet and supplementation mm -hmm. to try to um, bring down the inflammation and uh, high cortisol. So I mentioned low cortisol in my case, but high cortisol can make it difficult to, to lose weight. So Absolutely. supporting the adrenals uh, is, it could be very important. And uh, insulin resistance. And I know you talk a lot about leptin resistance, mm -hmm. you know, so those also could, could be factors when it comes to, uh, to weight gain and um, and again, we could talk more about that. You're, you're the expert on when it comes to leptin resistance, uh, but um, let's see, estrogen problems with estrogen metabolism also, that could be a factor. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even, even increased toxic, um, like having increased toxic load, you know, could be a factor as well. But, but I would say more commonly, like probably when it comes to, you know, just people dealing with hyperthyroidism who have the, the weight gain, all these could be factors. I would say, you know, the antithyroid medication, I would say the inflammation and um, uh, again, problems with the cortisol. Cause again, I mentioned how you know stress is a big factor. And even though I had low cortisol, a lot of people have high cortisol. They do, and yeah, I, yeah. So, um, so yeah, in, in my experience, those are some of the more common causes of, of weight gain and for those who experience weight gain with hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. And I think we probably um, have seen a little bit of a different patient population in a way. And because a lot of people are coming to me and they're just on methimazole, but probably most of them, I don't think have gone really deep into the, the supplements we're talking about, touching on the omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acid ratio, reducing inflammation, fixing gut health, doing their dietary changes and things like that. But if you're doing all that stuff, there's a good chance that you could come off of methimazole, right? That, that would be the entire goal. And if I think about methimazole, if, if you're a, a patient listening to this, is really putting the brake on your entire metabolism. Like that's really what it's doing. And the degree to which it breaks your metabolism is, is dependent upon the dose that you're taking. So if you're taking, like, you know, Dr. Osansky said, a high dose, I mean, 
good luck trying to lose weight while you're, it's like, you know, pressing the gas while you're trying to press and the brake simultaneously. It's just, you're not moving forward. You're going to, you're going to stand still. And so your number one goal, in my opinion, should be to see somebody like Dr. Osansky, if you're trying to lose weight, because if you can get off the methimazole, if you can fix those underlying problems, the estrogen metabolism, cortisol, insulin, leptin, you know, et cetera, if you can fix those problems, then you're going to actually be able to lose weight. But trying to lose weight while taking methimazole, I think is a, is, you know, a losing battle. You know, I, I just don't see a lot of success there. So, and I think right. if, yeah. And so I, I think we're on the same page with that. I guess um, one last question here I want to ask, because I know we're running out of time here, but what do you think about fasting in the set, setting of hyperthyroidism? Do you think, do you, is this a therapy that you use a lot? Do you have a lot of success with it? Um, what, do you, what do you think about it in general um, for hyperthyroid patients? Yeah. So I will say I'm definitely an advocate of fasting. I do intermittent fasting, yeah. but when it comes to hyperthyroidism, yeah. you know, I, I would say it, it depends on the person. More times, you usually know. I mean, there's- okay. If, if someone, you know, definitely not in a case like mine where someone's losing a lot of weight, but it's not just sure. the weight, it's also the adrenals. You know, a lot of people just have compromised adrenals. And so my, what I try to do is just try to, you know, improve their adrenal health. And to me, the, and everybody's going to have a different opinion, but to me, fasting is more something we'll do when they're in a better state of health. Um, again, there are exceptions. Like if someone's dealing with insulin resistance, uh, you know, or leptin resistance, then you know, maybe, you know, doing intermittent fasting, you know, and I'm sure it would help, but it's one of those things if someone has, you know, really compromised adrenals, you know, are there other ways to do it without the intermittent fasting? So, so yeah, I personally don't recommend intermittent fasting. Usually, again, there's always exceptions. Sure. But yeah. Most of the time, I don't go that route. But like I said, I def I'm definitely a believer. I, I do a lot of intermittent fasting myself. That, that's good to know. And I, I'm actually really grateful we had this conversation because you've given me a lot more information. I'm embarrassed to say than, than I knew previously. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Um, and I would strongly recommend if you're somebody in that situation where you're taking um, methimazole or an antithyroid medication and you're trying to prevent thyroidectomy, which is surgical removal of the thyroid um, or radioactive iodine ablation, which again, these are, you know, for the most part, RAI can be somewhat permanent, but these are permanent uh, we'll say treatments uh, to a problem that doesn't necessarily have to occur in all situations. And my recommendation, my, my parting uh, uh, words of advice would be to avoid those conditions or to avoid those therapies at all costs, if at all possible. And so seeing somebody like Dr. Osansky, I think is the way to go with that. And I really mean it. I, I, if you don't believe me, go check out the comment section on any, any video that I do regarding thyroidectomy or radioactive iodine ablation, you will see a ton of people who will regret getting that condition done. So, uh, you know, talk to them, look at them because it's permanent. Once it, once it's out, it's out. And your body, no matter how good you think doctors are, they're never going to be as good, um, as your own thyroid gland at producing thyroid hormone. You know, you, this is something that's working constantly every single day. And you know, the doctor at the end of the day, once they pull it out or surgically cut it out or, or destroy it with radiation, they'll give you one thyroid medication once per day, right? That does not take the place of the function of the thyroid gland. So um, that's my parting uh, words of advice for you. Uh, but I do want uh, to let you, uh, Dr. Osansky, tell people how to reach you if they want to get in contact you, with you. Maybe they want to read more about your books or get your books or uh, maybe do some coaching with you if that's what um, you're doing now. So maybe kind of tell people where they can find you. Sure. So, uh, so my website is naturalendocrinesolutions.com. So I have a lot of articles, hundreds of different articles, uh, many of them on hyperthyroidism, some on hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, and then uh, my book as well, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Grave Disease, you could find on Amazon. And then also I just uh, have a new podcast, the Save My Thyroid Podcast. Oh, good. So all that, find that where most podcasts are found. Yeah. Give me the link and to that. I'll include that below. Yeah, or actually, you can save save my thyroid podcast .com. Okay, so, so that's and and yeah, so those are some of the places where where people could find me. 
Awesome. Well, Dr. Osansky, I really appreciate your time. Um, and if people have any questions after you're, wherever you're watching this, go ahead and leave those comments below. I'll do my best to answer those. Um, and if Dr. Osansky maybe has time, he can uh, peek by as well. But that's all I have for you guys. And otherwise, I will see you in the next one.